0: Welcome to Road to Desert Rain, a new series um, put out there by Desert Rain Community Radio. Today is uh, David Morrison and I sit down and discuss his road to desert rain, and you can expect these uh, for the rest of June. We will be uh, releasing these on Tuesday, and then in the month of July we'll shift to releasing them every other Thursday and we will go back to um, releasing conversations with David and I on Tuesdays. Before we get into that, thank you, Diego, at Recording Moving Studios. He does all the editing and sound engineering for this uh, podcast. Thank you to David and Danny West. That's the the new music you hear there in the intro, and as well as the outro. If you're interested in learning more about Desert Rain Community, check out ruin.com. if you're interested in uh, listening to more of these podcasts you can listen on any podcatcher or go to drcrpod.com for a list of all our past episodes uh, if you're enjoying what you're hearing please tell a friend it helps us uh, immensely either by word of mouth or social media and lastly we appreciate you and let's get into it Welcome to our first episode here at uh, Desert Rain Community Radio. Uh, My name is Dorian Mason. I'm here with David Morrison. Hello. How are you doing tonight? Not bad, not bad. Nice. You excited or what? Here we are, here we are. (laughs) Here we are, man. Um, So I got something here I want to read to you. I'm assuming you wrote it. Actually, I'm like 95% sure you wrote it. Um, And I just want to know. I'm going to just read it. The kingdom of heaven can be linked unto a man who owned a depleted emerald mine. Tourists would pay him a dollar to dig around on his land for fun. One day, the man haphazardly laid a pickaxe into the side of his mine. To his amazement, he pulled out an emerald of extraordinary size, such that hadn't been seen in centuries. And not only did he find the one jewel, but an entire vein running deep into the earth. He spent the rest of his life mining the one vein of hiddenites, those who have a desire to understand will. How has that shaped your prayer life? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Talk about blindsiding me. Well, it. You want, do you want me to explain the origin of that story or...
0: No, let's let's just we'll explain it at some point. But let's just explain how that represents your prayer life.
1: I, I, maybe a way to put it, another parable would be from Howard Thurman in his Meditations of the Heart. He's he, he uh, to paraphrase him, he said inside of everyone's soul there's an there's an ocean at the center of your soul, and in the center of that ocean there's an island, and in the center of that island there's an altar. And before that altar, there's a, an angel with a flaming sword. And only you can choose what's on that altar for mm-hmm. your life. And so I, I think that's kind of the kingdom of God is so vast and diverse. Uh, and so for me at that age, when I discovered that parable, it was, uh, that was my treasure, which was the gazing upon God. That's what contemplation uh, kind of means, uh, in Latin, the gazing, the Roman astronomers would lie in a field all night gazing at the stars. They were Mm. contemplating the stars. Right. And so, so that's what the mystic hopes to do with the divine.
0: That's beautiful. And, uh, so basically what brought us here tonight together, uh, was, was this friendship that we've cultivated over the many years. And, um, one of the things that, that I know is, is near and dear to your heart is is the desert. Right, yeah. And that, that shaped and um, informed your prayer life in such a way that—how uh, how did you get there?
1: I have no idea. It just was from childhood. I would look out into the vast desert. It had the same effect on me as the ocean when I see mm-hmm. that. It's just this, this amazing vastness and depth to it. Uh, emptiness, but yet not empty—the right. uh, paradox of emptiness and fullness, I guess, presence and absence. But of course, as a six-year-old child, five-year-old child, I, you know, didn't have language for that. So it was just this mysterious drawing, uh, and fascination with the desert. Uh,
0: so, along with with uh, Mother Nature, if you will, the desert and the ocean. Uh, what was your what was the spiritual life like? Or maybe not spiritual, maybe religious, lifelike, uh growing up in, in your household.
1: Yeah, I was I was reared uh, an Irish Catholic, so which means we're psychotic and uh
0: <laughs> And use weird words like reared.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh <laughs> well, my poor mother had three boys, so she was trying to tame these two, three wild boys, particularly the middle child and the younger were really wild and And so it was—it was a typical El Paso Roman Catholic experience: the first communion, the you you go to mass on Sunday, special holy days, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Right. Uh, I didn't think much of it uh, until a little later, Uh, but it was just something we did.
0: And did you grow up by the desert or by the ocean or anything? Of that nature? What was your...
1: No, I was just born... Yeah, I was born in a neighborhood, uh, maybe two streets over. There was open desert that belonged to the military.
0: So you've been in the desert, so to speak, since since birth. Right. Yeah.
1: And then, yeah, there was an experience when I was about seven. We went to uh, a place up in Colorado, and it was called Seven Falls. Mm. I I think there's a Walmart parking lot there now. I've never... I haven't been back since the 1970s, so who knows what? Well, there's a
0: Walmart, Pet Smart, <laughs> I don't even a know, a dollar store
1: <laughs> somewhere in Colorado. There was a place called the Seven Falls. Uh, and you know, being from the desert, I'd never really seen water except for Scotate Lake or something like that, <laughs> right? You
0: know? Or the neighborhood, <laughs> the, swimming the canals pool. that we would fish <laughs> yeah, in, yeah, the
1: canals <laughs> in the lower ditches. valley, <laughs> and that was about it. So, I'd never seen water cascading off of cliffs that way and it was it was a, a mystical experience uh, for me i had this deep sense and longing a deep longing for the beauty of that cascading waterfall to be inside of me and then simultaneously realizing that it was inside of me but not having the language at seven years old to even analyze that or or uh, even sure codify that, like that in any sort of way
0: Right, or even share it with anyone that was probably there with you. Yeah, if I
1: was shared with my brothers, you know, that'd get you a, that'd get you a beating in my house. They would have
0: pushed you into the waterfalls, (laughs) (laughs) off of the
1: waterfall. They may have already. I don't know. Or I pushed my younger brother. Maybe.
0: There you go. (laughs) Uh, So, through Mother Nature, was that the first, uh, not spiritual, mystical experience? Is that was that the first mystical experience that you had? Ever had?
1: I would definitely say early on for yeah. sure, uh, and then later it was more liturgical and ecclesiastical. Mm-hmm. At, at the age of twelve, was that something you wanted me to go into? Or? Uh, yes. Okay. So later, yeah, it was at the age of twelve, and again, like we didn't really. I mean, we went to mass. Like I said, we went to the to the last stop mass usually which was Sunday nights late, late the Sunday last night. one you can do before incurring immortal sin upon your soul last call uh, according to father <laughs> o'mahoney uh, straight out of ireland maybe kicked out of there uh, <laughs> escorted out escorted to the airport <laughs> yeah, deported from ireland into america In del paso texas yeah, yeah. nice <laughs> the desert is where they send them and uh and so, uh, yeah, it was a sleepy mass in December. I wasn't feeling especially holy or mystical in any sort of way. I was a normal kid uh, in 1980 uh, or so. And, but when we went up to receive communion, the Eucharist, and he said, uh, Body of Christ, I, I had a, 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 a life-altering, life-changing vision of the Sacred Heart of Christ at that moment and the fire that was seen in his heart went into my heart i felt it physically in my chest and so that altered my life from that point on
0: and that was at 12 years old you had this you right uh over i mean experience doesn't quite do it justice
1: yeah because again i couldn't put it into words it just i just became more religious on if you would have seen me on the outside spent more time alone in the desert or even at church became an altar boy left my school uh, my dad at my dad's my dad figured you were out like something
0: kicked out of school on. for being too religious or what no
1: <laughs> I should have been yeah uh, my dad recognized something was going on with me and he suggested I go to either a seminary uh, high school seminary or oh. a uh, or just a Catholic school parochial school
0: so you were in public school right. growing up I had
1: friends and the whole mm-hmm. thing and and so I, yeah, so I felt a calling, if you will.
0: And what, uh, what grade what grade would that have been where you started the uh, Catholic sixth school? Sixth grade. Okay. I, I started
1: in Catholic school for the seventh grade all the way okay. to my junior year.
0: And during that, during that time is when you were involved, being an altar server, right. working at the church. Um,
1: Praying the rosary and taking care of the grotto on the outside and... Those kinds of things, feeling very holy, thinking very holy thoughts,
0: and because I know you so well today, um, I know you identify yourself as a Catholic, but you're definitely not involved in the Catholic Church with that same gusto, uh, or right. even one might argue at all in a in a formal way so what what uh what shifted in your teenage years, or whenever it happened? to get you to go from your dad offering to send you to uh, a seminary prep school to, to where you are today.
1: Well, usually when there's a, if there's any kind of an advancement in the spiritual life, it comes after a crisis. Usually you see that pattern in the gospels, you see that pattern in the Hebrew scriptures, Mm. a crisis has to occur Mm -hmm. in order to advance. And, and so, so yeah, so I, I was very much involved with a uh, with a Methodist youth group as well in my okay. teenage years, and felt a, just built a lot of friendships there and uh, and saw that kind of spiritual that more evangelical spirituality and and so got exposed to that and was I guess for lack of a better word I was an ecumenical Catholic as a teenager
0: because you would go to you would go to both right Methodist right. and Catholic.
1: Um, I didn't go to the, I didn't join the Methodist church. Okay. Uh, I was very devoted to the Catholic church at the time. And, um.
0: So was it strictly their youth group? Just
1: the youth group. Okay. Just the youth group. And, and then when I was about 17, everything just kind of collapsed. The, the church, the Methodist church folded.
0: Like literally? Uh, yeah. I, locked the doors yeah, they, sort of situation? I
1: think the last parishioner died at oh, wow. 98 or something. I don't know. The youth pastors the that last, we had. The uh, last fundraiser. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Our youth sponsors uh, relocated mm. to the south. Uh, not the south side of El Paso, but <laughs> the south side the of actual, the United States. right? And, and so just everything just uh, fell apart. And then my family ran out of uh, money to continue uh, paying tuition at the catholic school so i had to relocate to public school so so all that happened in one summer oh wow and so it was it was quite a quite a crisis and from
0: 7th grade up until this point your your faith and your activity in the church and all these different things sort of the checkbox of things is growing during that whole time right i
1: was a gung ho boy scout catholic very mm. proud to be a a catholic institutionally speaking and those prayers molded my spiritual life, the the traditional prayers, the Hail right. Mary, the Our Father, the rosary.
0: I imagine going to confession, all, the Eucharist, all, the all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Very much involved in all of that, and that formed my identity. And so that identity basically collapsed, crushed. I felt. Yeah. Uh, my family was changing. My older brother had left home to go to college, and and uh, my younger brother and I kind of parted ways. We didn't really see each other much. and so it was just a you know as kids become teenagers right families the family life changes and so all that was going on that one summer i remember coming home from a camp a methodist camp and and uh, in the middle of the afternoon and nobody was even home it was mm. just everybody was just doing their own just intense feeling of loneliness and that kind of thing so that really drove me to seek god and to to pray more earnestly and and uh, and, I, and at the time I became very hungry because I'd heard rumblings about charismatic experience uh, from a nun in the Catholic school, uh, the experience of speaking in tongues and praying for the sick with effect, um, those kinds of things. And
0: when you say you heard from it from a nun, was she bad mouthing those things? Because I know growing up in, myself growing up in the Catholic Church, that stuff wasn't really talked about as yeah. far as.
1: It was a confusing—the Catholic Church is a very wide umbrella. And so my parish priest very much against—if you listen to my parish priest and his Irish accent, there were two things you didn't want to become. One was a liberation theologian; those those Lord, communists down Lord, in Lord South forbid. America, and the second was a charismatic Catholic or Christian.
0: Okay, and, uh, and so where so, did this nun fall into the into the?
1: She was a charismatic, she uh, was, and okay. liberation theologian, <laughs> as were all the liberal theologians at the school. All the brothers, uh, the the uh, Christian brothers, uh-huh. and so, uh, so I ended up becoming both of those. Not really out of rebellion; I was trying not to, and ended up.
0: You're trying to be a good Catholic.
1: Yeah, so I, I thought a good Catholic doesn't become a liberation theologian <laughs> or a charismatic, and I ended up uh, oh, becoming both. And so, and so, yeah, so often the irony comes uh, with, with in humorous ways. So the, what you declare that you, that you won't do, you end up yeah, often right. becoming. So we used to make fun of these churches that would—we called them pop-up-on-the-corner churches— Uh, these little Pentecostal and charismatic, uh, independent kind of non-denominational churches that pop up next to the laundromat. We used to make fun of those churches. Well, that's exactly where I ended up at the age of uh, 17.
0: So you're back in public school.
1: Right. So I'm kind of a stranger trying to... Make friends. Make friends and... um, and, you know, and I'm a, I, at the time, I was the 80s. I dressed very conservatively like Alex P. Keaton. I wore a tie and a uh, V-neck sweater to school. And, <laughs> and it was the 80s. You didn't get killed for that.
0: Like uh, you would now.
1: <laughs> you know, and I had a, a proper uh, semi-mullet haircut, feathered hair. And so I, I hear about this uh, campus of Angela's guy who's got hair down to his waist uh, and he wears spandex. His name was Steve Alvarez. We're still friends after all these years. Uh, and he was uh, he was one of these charismatic uh, Christians. And so okay. I introduced myself to him, and he invited me to his pop up on the corner church, and which was on Dyer Street. And uh,
0: was it in the Devil's Triangle?
1: <laughs> close, Dyer Street. Close. If you're from El Paso, you'll know. <laughs> it was all the Devil's Triangle you know, back you then. Know. Okay. <laughs> you didn't walk <laughs> Veterans all bad news. Park back then. <laughs> You go to Veterans Park now and there's <laughs> Yeah, there's uh, old couples. There's moms and pushing their around. strollers and dads <laughs> pushing strollers and uh old couple and the, yeah and when the sun went down back then no one was there. You it meant you had to run and get out of there. Um and so he invited me to his church uh which was having a meeting on a Friday night and so I showed up, and of course he didn't show up. My friend Steve Alvarez, <laughs> nice. if you are listening, thank
0: thanks, you. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> thanks,
1: Steve. Thanks, uh, Steve. And so I sat in the very back and just thought, oh, "What am I doing?" Mm-hmm. You know, just I was in a total cognitive dissident.
0: Uh Because the guy you are supposed to meet's not there. Yeah, he's
1: my anchor socially and, speaking.
0: And the type of church you are at is totally yeah against what you've you've seen in the Catholic. Exactly. Not against, but just so different. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you you know. I mean, uh, my mother's confessional book that she had in the fifties, uh, in preparing for confession, it actually says to confess: Have you gone to a Protestant meeting? Uh, so that you confess amazing. that as a sin, you know. And wow. And so yeah, we're talking some serious centuries of repression here. Yeah. Now. Oh yeah. And so, so I sit in the back, and then the the young uh, preacher, his name is Dale Walker. He still uh, ministers in, in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and um, he's probably in his late 20s at the time. Uh, he gets up there in the front. He has his Bible, and he's uh, and he says uh, something like, we're, we're not going to have a teaching tonight. We're just going to worship, which I didn't know what that meant, uh, and we're going to uh, minister to each other. And I, th- I thought, what does that mean? Uh, is that legal? Uh, is this, you know? <laughs>
0: Where's the just, priest? Is <laughs> this dirty? What is this? What,
1: what does that mean? And so I was sitting in the corner and in the very back, losing my religion, as the song says. And uh, and so they lower the lights because that's what charismatics do, you know, in case an angel shows up or
0: gotta be able Moses to see
1: or somebody shows up and got to be able to see him. And I have my eyes closed. I'm trying to just pray quietly, wondering if I should be praying repentance or... You know, or right. why, you know, what yeah, am I doing here? The God, the confusion
0: is, has set <laughs> has fully set in. <laughs> I want to
1: be here, but I don't want to be here. You know, and and then uh, I opened my eyes on the and Dale Walker sitting next to me, and he and he immediately says, uh, "Would you like to uh, pray to receive the gift of tongues, uh, also known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit?" And I was like, "Yes, no." And, <laughs> and so he prays with me, and I begin to babble in tongues like a like a Pentecostal. And it uh erupted, changed my life.
0: And this is the first time you're in the <laughs> Yeah, that, the first that,
1: time. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and so uh so that that opened a new dimension, if you will, like the parable that you read uh at the beginning, a vein of emerald, a vein of jewels, of of new things, uh spiritual treasures from the kingdom of God to to explore and to share with others.
0: And so as as you're Evolving some, as you've had this experience, I guess would be the right way to say it. How does that then step into uh, your connection with the desert, your connection with the Catholic Church, this new experience, this new vein that you found, so to speak?
1: Right. Yeah. So I, you know, discovered things like uh, Bible reading became important.
0: Which, Which was, is not important, yeah, it's in not the a, Catholic Church, from what I, I remember. I
1: think it's changing now, but okay. I, I think they're they're talking. Most Catholics that I run into now talk more like evangelicals and really most okay. anyway. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah. So Bible meditation and study and uh, preaching, um, wild, kind of spontaneous singing of songs, contemporary songs even. Okay. that they were writing. It was a movement called the Vineyard at the time. Still exists. Mm-hmm. Still moving. Uh, singing these these contemporary kinds of songs and lifting your hands, th- those kinds of things. Singing freely, much like a rock concert. Mm. Um, a free-flowing experience. And then always being ready with the question, of, what is God doing? You're always asking that question. And so so you're always ready to share either uh some sort of spiritual gift with anyone uh the gift of of the gospel or kindness or some sort of supernatural yeah. gift praying for someone
0: so walking down the street oh yeah you're supposed to be on high alert for this yeah
1: absolutely yeah and i okay. totally was obnoxiously so and so so that's so that's what the journey became and um and that's what ministry is it, it was to me anyway mm-hmm. uh, and so, the, so the, I was mentored and trained there in that church for, for many years. And I lost my connection institutionally with the Catholic Church just because okay. no one noticed I left, you know? Right. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a strong social network for me at the time. It was more of a postmodern, uh, everything is uh, kind of, the center can't hold and things are falling apart, so to speak.
0: And the feeling, I imagine, was you wandered off and no one cared so you just kept wandering right exactly
1: yeah. and so and my parents eventually forgave me and so it was okay
0: <laughs> they're they, talking to you again
1: i mean i am sure they were concerned that was in a cult and those kinds of things and uh but you know after a while they 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 saw this wasn't just a trend or a fad
0: and when you said you you received training did you is, did you go to a Bible college or was there a seminary or what? You know, was there formal training, informal? What What did that look like yeah, growing up in that church?
1: Kind of a mixture of both, but it was because we were affiliated with the Vineyard movement, so they brought in professors who were uh, uh, positive towards towards charismatic experience. This was called the third wave. Mm. Uh, for those of you who want to look it up on Wikipedia, uh, evangelicals basically. Uh, Embracing charismatic experience, but not going full on Pentecostal.
0: Okay. Sort of meeting them halfway. Right.
1: So you take a Baptist and a Pentecostal and you have a love child, and boom, you have third wave. You got wave.
0: Vineyard, Vineyard <laughs> Third vineyard Wave.
1: And Calvary Chapel and many others. Okay. And uh and so that's kind of so we so we bring in professors and special teachers. We were always going to conferences, um, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, VHS
0: cassette tapes.
1: Ooh. Yeah and
0: uh go pop it in and right and watch those good old fashioned edited 70s and 80s <laughs> <Yes>. movies
1: <laughs> and so yeah. so it was a lot of that kind of training and then ev- originally eventually the emphasis became uh, church planning mm. so i was the youth pastor there for
0: within the third wave or within the vineyard
1: oh no within our personal church uh-huh. yeah and vineyard too yeah mm-hmm. and so so I, was, so I had to make the transition in my 20s from being a, the youth pastor there for so many years to uh, to launching out and, and planting a church, a sister church across the city.
0: And how did that? Uh, how did that come? How do you go from being a a youth minister to tag you're you're the next guy to set out and plant a church for for the team?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, once again, it becomes a, cri- a crisis has to occur uh, yes. before a rebirth happens. And, right, and so. So a lot happened in my early twenties, uh, at the same time, graduated from college, uh, with an English degree. So I decided to go that route instead of, uh, formal seminary. And, uh, and I really wanted to teach public schools mm. and teach English specifically. And so, so I decided not to go on staff at the church and, uh, and so, um, uh, that caused some tensions. And then the week I got, Marsh and I married, uh, there were some disturbances with her family. And um, and and then my grandmother passed away I went to her funeral on Monday, got married on that Friday.
0: Oh, and then wow. I think
1: I started my teaching career on that following Monday, if I remember right. It was just a lot. of, And I had just graduated from college the week before that.
0: It's a yes. hell of a whirlwind.
1: So it was just, yeah, a whirlwind experience. And then two months after that, my brother, who was 21 at the time, was killed in a car wreck. And so that, that definitely caused a, a spiritual crisis, emotional crisis, any kind of crisis that you can yeah, think of. Yeah, all wrapped up in one. And so so that kind of pushed me towards, towards uh, looking at new things and,
0: so what, what was the new thing you were looking at specifically? Because you're in the middle of teaching at this point. Right. You're two or three months in. Your brother passes, and so what?
1: Yeah, so, so ministry became, uh, you know, I was pastoring a, a really large youth, youth group from uh, middle school all the way to college. And it was, it was a very large ministry, and I just abruptly uh, resigned. And so, uh, because it just was so empty at that point, so for the, me,
0: was this before while um, you're teaching? Yeah, and I'm okay. also
1: teaching at the same time, and I'm enjoying the teaching process. I'm learning a lot you. there, right? And um, and so that put me kind of in the wilderness, so to speak, in the in the, my church social world, um, and and so uh, I had to I had to die to that identity.
0: Being the big badass yeah, yeah. youth group being leader, the youth
1: pastor, and all that kind of stuff, and uh, and so that's so that's the crisis, and so so out of that, the dominant question on my mind and heart at that time was, where are you, God, and what do you feel, especially what are you thinking about this situation with my brother being killed tragically? Uh, where are you in the suffering of the world? what what do you actually think about it how do you even feel about it and it was just this absence sense of the not so much you know charismatics are very much about the presence of god mm-hmm. the uh,
0: the holy the spirit the imminent
1: presence of god right mm-hmm. whereas the catholic experience it's it focuses more on the transcendent mystery of god
0: right which is what i'm i'm familiar with growing up in the catholic church
1: right and so instead of this imminent presence a sense of that it was it was a sense of vast emptiness and absence of god
0: through these me. crises right so, as they unfold exactly in my
1: mid-20s by this point
0: so you feel like you're completely alone
1: right exactly and and it matched the music at the time you know it was very dark and we had nirvana it's <laughs> <laughs> <Nirvana So,
0: laughs> probably peaking i was at a that typical
1: general Gen Xer, i guess you know just kind of wandering away wandering through life and uh, right in my mid twenties. And, um, and then there came a revelation from, uh, I believe it was, it was uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, which uses this phrase says the mystery of the ages, uh, which had been hidden all these centuries has now been revealed. And here it is. It is Christ within you, the hope Mm -hmm. of glory. And so this intimate realization that what it what is God feeling in all of this? Well, I realized that the tears that I was crying and the mourning that I was doing, God was doing that through me, and there was this union of that joint suffering, and that was a major spiritual breakthrough. So that that's revelation.
0: To go back to the parable at the beginning, it's like finding that emerald within your own heart, exactly, within your own soul.
1: It was a new a new uh, vein of. Of uh, Emerald, or if you will, or diamond mm. to to mine out, and that became yeah my focus as as far as inwardly
0: so what what exactly after having that experience, how exactly did that affect your trajectory of planting a church
1: uh, yeah, that's a good way to I guess because that was such an internal revelation, mm. the union life of christ and 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 where is Christ today? The risen Christ weeps through every person that is weeping for their family right now. Uh, the risen Christ is peculiarly, in a peculiar way present in uh, those who've been shut away in prisons, those who've been disappeared. Uh, those, those that
0: are wandering.
1: Yes. And so the, the, my emphasis became more internal at that point. And so those external things uh, weren't as, imp- as an important factor anymore and so so then i just uh, losing my train of thought
0: we're opening so we're opening a church
1: so yeah. yeah so so in that crisis it just felt like there was not much there for me anymore in the church that i had come to love so much and
0: So have you already canceled or not canceled, but resigned from the youth group or is this what's leading up? So you've already walked away from the youth group. Right.
1: And so they, they didn't really know what to do with me you know. in there. And, and, you know, and I did some adult ministry, some adult groups, Bible studies, prayer things, but there, it just wasn't, it just wasn't really the, the fire was, was kind of gone. And, um, and so I began to look elsewhere, uh, and since that was kind of the trend at the time to leave and plant a church, that's that just made it. just made sense for the next move.
0: It gives you a fresh break, though. right? Next and, chapter.
1: And our friends were, you know, people from uh, the school, you know, teachers that I was meeting, and people I was meeting on the east side of El Paso, and so it just made sense to plant a church in your social group, and so. That's kind of what what I ended up doing. I mean, there was there were some signs. I don't want to demystify it either. Uh, we did go to a conference in uh, Dallas, Texas at the time. You have to understand, Pentecostals are wonderful people, but they're also the some of the goofiest people you'll ever meet. And uh, it's, it's you know, been my
0: experience. <laughs> I mean, the
1: verse the verse that would describe the Pentecostal movement would be. God is, is in Corinthians. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Mm. And, and, uh, and they embrace that wholeheartedly. And so at the time, there was this trend called the the Toronto blessing. And it's just, I can't really get into it now. Well, you, once
0: again, you, kid, you can Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, you
1: kids out there love Wikipedia.
0: <laughs> Hit that Google, that Google.com.
1: It was a strange phenomenon uh, in the, in our churches.
0: And it's called uh, the Toronto Blessing, right? Because okay. it was a, centered around
1: a church in Toronto. Okay. Uh, and you know, and people would just uh, do the craziest things when "quote unquote" inspired by the spirit. Uh, they would roar like lions. That was one thing. Nice. They would uh, make animal-like noises. They would uh, walk around on the floor on all fours. It so was this, the craziest thing.
0: Is this the equivalent to? Praying in tongues, or is this even like it was praying those.
1: in tongues to the 10th power? Okay, yeah, let's see what right. else we can
0: how, 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 far how we more could we go. can push
1: this envelope into weirdness and wildness. And I was open minded about it because it was the 90s and we had the X Files and <laughs> the whole thing, and so I wanted to be open minded about that stuff, even though I didn't really experience it myself. Um, but I wasn't you know, I was very slow to judge those things.
0: Well, and you had always also experienced some mystical things yeah whether it's a waterfalls or the exactly you know burning heart of christ you know so, so who am
1: i to say god didn't inspire that guy to roar like yeah. a lion and walk around on all fours and then go back to his insurance job on monday I, you know i i don't know uh but i you know so i had an open mind but i i struggled at this particular conference because it was uh in texas it was in dallas and uh they killed the only irish president that we've had and so, I have, my family grew up with kind of a bias against Dallas, Texas. Uh, I, I,
0: I, Irish and Catholic, right? You know. So it's got a double.
1: It, it's yeah. It's it's uh, it's Irish Alzheimer's. Uh, you forget everything except the grudges. And so, uh, and the and the accent and the whole thing. I had a uh, prejudice against that, and the hype of everything. Even their billboards on the street uh, were twice as big as the ones in El Paso. Well, I think it's also important,
0: important to point for those that aren't familiar with the greater Texas culture. Uh, El Paso is is like the stepchild of Texas. No one, right. no one uh, in Texas proper. If you were talking to someone from Texas, will claim El Paso, right. and so there, there's a de- there's definitely a um, uh, rivalry there between El Paso and the rest of of Texas.
1: Exactly. So I had a major chip on my shoulder about it, culturally speaking. And and so we're there and you know, there's a couple thousand people in this hotel and and I'm wondering should I plan a church? Should I not plan a church? Should I, you know, what what do I do next with my life? Should I just focus on my teaching career? You know, those kinds of questions in my mid-20s. And
0: has the the, the church planning idea been floated out?
1: to a certain extent? Oh, yeah, at that point? yeah, okay. for sure.
0: So it's in discussion. Yeah, and discussing. they were
1: training, you know, our pastor was training a small group of people to do that to see which ones would actually launch out.
0: And I see, okay. And I was a
1: part of that group. and Right. Um, and so out of nowhere, uh, and I didn't have a name tag on, uh, this man came up to me, and he didn't have the accent. Uh, he was African-American, and so that put a plus in my mind for <laughs> Him. he didn't have a cowboy hat on. he wasn't
0: a dallas native <laughs> yeah with his cowboy hat and exactly accent.
1: he didn't have uh the dallas cowboys embroidered on his shirt and
0: uh those are all pluses uh
1: but he but he was very pentecostal and he immediately he didn't even introduce himself he just came up to me he put his hand on my chest and he said lord you've called this man to the desert and there was no way he could have known that um like i said there was no name tag that I was wearing and, and then he began to, uh, to speak several other things and it was extremely powerful. And it just gave me the, the, uh, the confidence, if you will, to move forward. And so I did after that, that,
0: that nudge from Christ. Yeah, exactly.
1: And a nudge through the body of Christ and a nudge through in a context where you'd normally be offended,
0: Mm. you know, and, and
1: you can see the pattern now, uh,
0: and a nudge too where your your walls were up, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And the same with when I was seventeen and I go to the pop-up on the mm. corner church. It, it was offensive to my spiritual culture mm-hmm. to go there. And that's what
0: broke you over. Where where
1: God is able to move. And so it's the same thing. And so uh, yeah, so we began to gather a team and began to uh, launch out and and we did. We we had our first Sunday service, I believe, in October of 1996.
0: And so, from that October, obviously, we've we've touched on your prayer life and your your. Uh, religious training your religious background and things of that nature so so now that you're a pastor of the church right you're you're sort of in a or you're not sort of in you're in a leadership role people are looking up to you so how does this then begin to uh what what uh plants start to grow from this new role you have as a as the guy
1: yeah it was it was very difficult obviously and I didn't quit my teaching jobs. So, so I was working very hard, long hours to try to launch this church. And uh, I thought adults, you know, cause I was so used to being with young people, you mm-hmm. know, I'm in my mid twenties, late twenties at this time. When you launch and, the church. Right. right. And so, but my experience had been with young people, you know, I was a teacher of middle school and mm-hmm. high school and then, and then a youth pastor. And so I wasn't, my, Marsha and I were not prepared we, we, we had this naivete, uh, assuming that adults had it together. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so their problems were adult problems, and they were terrifying. And so I'd call my mom and tell her, I'm scared. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Pray a rosary tonight for me. And uh, she would. And, uh, and so that just drove us into uh, what we call intercessory prayer. In, okay. in the charismatic evangelical world.
0: And what is that? i not it's, familiar. it's
1: supplication where you're, you're trying to pray in the, in the mind of God, in the will of God, mm. for, for God's kingdom or order or presence to break into the, uh, into the arenas of mankind into and the into here. people's personal
0: lives. Into the here and now.
1: Right. Mm. And mm. so we're praying for the restoration of marriages, the healing of marriages. We're praying for the healing of, of sick ones people that have been in accidents and uh, those kinds of things. And so those kind of people came to our church. And so we had to, you know, we were desperately learning how to pray for miracles to happen.
0: And some of them did.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's some did and, and not enough happened at the same time. The ones that did not happen broke my heart and um, and were more valuable of an experience than the quote-unquote breakthrough miracles.
0: So can you share share one of these heartbreaking experiences that that leveled you?
1: Uh, I was a two-year-old child that we had been praying for, uh, passed away suddenly, and that just broke me.
0: And there's no words
1: for that? No, there's no words for that. There's, and there's no frame of reference for that in that world where Uh, in that revival mentality where there's only the breakthrough there's never there's a resurrection without the cross often Mm. uh there's there's no uh sense of mystery room for mystery or or or, uh unresolved problems and so so yeah so that was definitely a a crisis for me
0: and it sounds like that if a prayer is not answered it's just chalked up to failure.
1: On the extremes, yes. Uh, they'll say, well, it's not God. They're, they're very quick to defend God. And so they'll say, mm. it wasn't God's fault that your miracle didn't happen, that your healing didn't happen, that your brother's dead. Uh, it's, it's your fault. You didn't something you did. Now, Vineyard took a softer stance. That's why they're neo-charismatics, if you will, and would say, we don't know, and we're not going to try to answer that. But inquiring minds always want to know.
0: Right. And so. Well, we, as human beings, we enjoy this um, idea, but I think it's a false idea of the black and white.
1: Exactly. Good
0: versus evil. There's only good and there's only evil. Yeah. And, and to evaporate the, the gray area.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in my late 20s and early 30s, I didn't have the intellectual, emotional, or spiritual capacity to uh to deal with opposites it was black or white,
0: was so you had bought into that
1: oh yeah, yeah, for sure. yeah. of thinking, yeah, right. you know, a product of my time and and so uh and and when we'd use the at least when I did when I used the word mystery at that time, it was just a catch all phrase for we're just not going to even <laughs> think about look it at that right yeah, now. it's a mystery, you know, don't hmm. even.
0: We'll it's, it's not it.
1: relevant to today, you know, kind of thing. And so one of the the contradictory uh, poles, if you will, that I couldn't resolve at that age was I was trained specifically in church growth theory, how to grow a church. But I was drawn to long hours of prayer and mm-hmm. seeking God's heart, not just for intercessory prayer, but to seek God in the in the sense of uh, A. W. Tozer in his books um, at the time. He's very popular in the charismatic and evangelical world, at least at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I couldn't reconcile the two. I saw them as opposites. Uh, I saw Growing
0: tr- the church and spending long hours and right
1: in exactly. And so I had to choose one or the other.
0: And was uh, there a, like a tipping point?
1: Uh, yeah, we we began to uh, we felt uh, the core of the church. The few of us really felt a calling to uh, to pray every night, and we did that. We we got together every night for at least five or six years.
0: So you're so at this point in your life, you're still teaching full time. Right. You're running a church full time. It seems like, right. and you're praying every night <laughs> right. for long hours. <laughs>
1: And I'm personally going out into the desert right after work, for a couple hours a day at the same time. And I'm getting up at five in the morning and just you know
0: just. And what what are you going into the desert for? Just to get the hell away from people?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. The desert was is my prayer uh, prayer uh, so you're just, carpet,
0: if you will. You're continuing to be and drawn so, out right, there. Drawn out there.
1: Exactly. And trying to, and and I again at the time, I couldn't reconcile the two. I felt like uh and I used to say have a saying then and, and it's somewhat true uh don't let ministry uh don't let mi- ministry keep you from knowing god mm. and so I kind of saw this ambition and it was the ambition that was in me to to be a success in ministry was opposite of what the gospel had, had called me to do
0: so the ambition in you when you started this church mega church.
1: Right, yeah, it was the mega church model. Right, and so it was the cutting edge at the time in the late '80s and '90s, and uh, and with with a revivalist mindset that God is going to open the heavens and uh, people are going to miraculously uh, get saved and come to church and that kind of thing. And so, so it was it was the uh, the collision of those things.
0: Of the me. the prayer the prayer life. And the mega church life exactly, banging heads together, exactly and so what what where on the fence did you fall
1: well, I, well, I chose prayer, but but we soon ran into a problem, praying every night. You can only pray so many hours for this over and over again for revival to come to your city, mm. and so we ran out of material to pray uh spontaneously so and and so I began to look for uh, models of prayer, and, you know, I had no idea that, you know, there was this whole monastic tradition that's thousands, you know, to uh, at least 1,500 years old, if, right. if not older.
0: Right.
1: Uh, and I began to to fall into that and began to use fixed-hour prayer sources and burn through many of those, the, the Book of Common Prayer, the... Uh, the Liturgy of the Hours in the Catholic Church. I used the Greek Orthodox prayer book for a while. Um, and some popular ones that were coming. I think Phyllis Tickle had one. I can't remember the name, but, but I used that set. So we began to pray fixed hour prayer as well, praying the scriptures basically.
0: And this is still while you have your church. Exactly. And you're teaching. Yeah, preaching all- on
1: Sundays at the, at the school where I was teaching.
0: One, well, it, it's very uh, once again the irony or the, the maybe the beauty within it is those early monastics were referred to the the great desert fathers, right. So and once again, you're you're getting getting pulled a little bit deeper into the desert.
1: Exactly, exactly. In fact, it was a Thomas Merton book that somehow found its way into my living room, and it's called Thoughts in Solitude. And he in the intro, he talks about the desert. The desert wilderness is the place where uh, Yahweh uh, wooed his, his, uh, his bride, Israel, in the mm-hmm. wilderness. Uh, it's where Jesus went. It's, uh, it's this place. And I just, I threw it across the room. I couldn't believe this. This book was reading my innermost thoughts that I couldn't pull out into words. And so, so it was just an amazing time of growth. This would have been in my, my uh, early 30s so, so as, it was a really amazing time of growth
0: so as as this is unfolding and you're realizing that it's not sustainable to to maintain both of these things what what could, what what gives what gives for the change
1: right so yeah eventually something was going to break open and and so uh through some inward experiences and i just felt a a call to a more monastic kind of life, a life of uh, pursuing simplicity, maybe not poverty, but simplicity, Mm -hmm. Uh, pursuing prayer, pursuing simple uh, acts of, of justice and outreach and kindness rather than programmed. And so, and others were feeling it too around me. And so we began to ask the question, how can we transition this consumer oriented church into a community oriented church that's that's more Christ centered and less consumer based like the greater secular culture.
0: And the consumer based is mega church.
1: Yeah grow bigger butts, and better, butts become in popular. Seats,
0: bigger ties. Right. More bigger fireworks. Numbers.
1: Yeah more more and more. You know, instead of uh Less, less, less. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, with that being said, what, where, where does that land you?
1: Uh, it landed me in a whole lot of trouble <laughs> is what it did. <laughs> you can't be talking like that when a church is on the up and up, right? Uh, by the early two thousands, I mean we were we had hit I think something like four hundred people coming every and, week, and you know, and I was able to give impassioned sermons where everyone would cheer at the moment and then as soon as they got in their car, they were probably oh, my God, he's a madman. <laughs> and so uh,
0: is this is a wild guy doing.
1: So when we began to make actual moves after this dialogue of about a year, maybe more, of of how can we make this transition? Um uh, one one person uh, actually told us, yeah, we I liked talking about it, but I really didn't think we were gonna actually do anything. And and when we actually started making moves to do that, uh, it uh, I became not very popular.
0: And what did that's, those moves look like?
1: Uh, moving, we began to ask the question about uh, it. Doesn't matter what your mission statement is. It doesn't matter what your uh, goals are. Where do you spend the money? That tells you what your real values mm, are. Right. And we. And was, that's
0: true in everyone's life. Exactly. Not just the churches, but.
1: And so the hard scrabble fact for us was that our money was being spent on rent to have a sunday meeting and so that's what we had to face i had to face that was the definite we are a meeting
0: right a sunday meeting
1: we are sunday meeting and i didn't i didn't personally want to do that anymore and so i began to look at other models outside of contemporary church i was looking at more community models so, so I began to study, I began to call people, began to visit people who, who lived in actual intentional community um, because we wanted to break the church up into house churches at the time and, and live a quasi-monastic life with our families, with our kids.
0: In close uh, proximity to e- each other. Exactly.
1: So we began to look at how that could happen and so forth and so on.
0: And what were some of the, you said you visited places, you read stuff. What what were some of those resources that you, you stepped into?
1: Yeah, definitely revisited my Catholic roots and Mm -hmm. the monastic movement, specifically the Irish monastic movement. Uh, the early Celtic or Irish, uh, communities had celibates. They had married people. They had families living in in these monastic like communities, Mm um, the Quakers, the Bruderhof, uh, the Moravian movement. So we began to look at, at those kinds of of uh, movements and dialoguing with people and and a lot of reading.
0: So once you went through this sort of investigative state, what were your actions?
1: We began to look for a property at that point, and the church by this point is bleeding people they're just exiting is, okay. exiting out very quickly and our hope was to transplant the church right uh and transform it transition it but we failed at doing that and so it, it uh so we began to and we wanted to do this in texas
0: because you're still in el paso this right. whole time correct and
1: there was desert prop, there were desert properties east of us that were prime, but the the texas laws just wouldn't let uh let us do that it, uh
0: Multiple families. Yeah, multiple families on the.
1: Yeah, they're trying to avoid. They they enacted anti-colonial laws, mm-hmm. and so we would have had to have provided our own um, water system, like the actual tower.
0: Oh wow! Yeah,
1: millions of dollars. Right. It, was like, it was just impossible, and so we did what uh, all uh, aspiring Manassas would do. We went to New Mexico. <laughs>
0: Went to the poor land.
1: Exactly. Where they're like, We don't care. <laughs> yeah,
0: come on in. We got you.
1: Yeah. And so this this was a process of about a year of looking for properties and
0: and you found one with, in your with Mexico. the core group that
1: was left. Yeah.
0: And so how many would that core group what what number wise? Like three families, something like that. So you went from four hundred people coming on Sundays to three families yes. stepping into this new adventure.
1: Exactly. So I was very much looking like the minority, a slim minority. Minorities are always wrong in this country. And so uh, that's what I got to experience. And so it was definitely a, a stigma.
0: Uh, there must have been, if you don't mind me saying, some humiliation oh, yeah. with that.
1: Yeah, it was a humiliating experience in a lot of ways. My uh, status, if you will, as a mm. local pastor fell. Uh I went back to our home, our mother church, uh, went back there for a Sunday service and someone yelled, uh, David Koresh at me from across the the sanctuary, uh, church ladies would come up. This one church lady came up to me and she was, you're that guy doing that thing in the desert. And, uh, (laughs) and I was like, there's a lot of guys probably doing a lot of things in the desert. So I don't know know
0: which one you're talking about.
1: And, And so, yeah, there was definitely a, and, and.
0: So let's tease this out a little bit. We'll, we'll we'll wrap it up here, but let's tease it out. So you leave this church that you had planted, you had started. Three families step out into the the middle of the desert in New Mexico.
1: Right. And so we just started having meetings, and we were hosted uh, here in Chaparral uh, by by a local pastor, uh, Ernie Nettie, was his name, and still still pastors. Uh, a church there, and um,
0: so he would let you use there because I assume you don't have a building at this point,
1: right? Yeah, so he, yeah, so we would meet there, mm-hmm. and uh, and we just began trying to to forge out a uh, a monastic rhythm of life, is what we tried to do, which is basically working together, praying together, and uh, and just living a a natural kind of life that way around those things
0: allowing that rhythm to sort of settle in right on a day-to-day basis so
1: trying to figure that out so we weren't all that sure what it was going to look like we just went off into the dark in that sense again it's a it's a crisis of faith that births a uh, a new a new direction or a new uh room in the mansion
0: a new a new uh, a new vein to mine yeah, exactly if you will well, let's let's leave off there I, I think that's a good place to sort of wander off into the into the desert that uh that mental image of you and the the two other families you and your family and the two other families uh heading into the desert to to find out what uh, what a monastic uh, christ-driven life might look like so uh once again i'm i'm dorian mason here on uh desert rain community radio uh, with david morrison Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll on the next one, we'll we'll pop up and and talk about that monastic desert. Um, Until then, have a beautiful night.